last year, Nice Things from Hayes from his CD, You Get It All. And that's about all for the Extra Large Soul Show. Stay tuned for um, some good programming coming up at 4 o'clock. Until next week, this is Alan Sprague saying, Walk with Beauty. Thanks to listener financial support, WERU is and always has been your source for diverse, local, and worldwide music and information. Become a member at 469-6600 or WERU.org. Thank you. Swing to Sun Ra, Coleman Hawkins to Coltrane, Bebop to Hard Pop to Post Pop. You'll hear a special emphasis on trios, slow brushwork ballads, the saxophone, live recordings, unaccompanied solos, and even an occasional bossa nova when you tune into Groove Shop here on WERU. In other words, jazz. Or when you're cooking dinner, reading some poetry, Fretfully fritting about the house, dreading work tomorrow. Jazz. My name is DJ Soser, and I'm on every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. You are tuned to WERU Community Radio, 89.9 Blue Hill, WERU.org, and on our smartphone app. Empowering and inspiring community by sharing diverse music, information, and perspectives. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Change Agents, conversations about human rights. This past November was the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht, when Nazis destroyed Jewish businesses and homes and terrorized Jewish families on November 9th and 10th, 1938. In Germany, Austria, and in Sudetenland, a portion of Czechoslovakia that Germany had annexed. We will read from and discuss a remarkable and disturbing book about the about Kristallnacht. Uh, we also will discuss the current level of anti-Semitism in U.S. schools. This also is very disturbing. What we, be, we will be reading may not be appropriate for young children to listen to. My guests are Amy Thurston, uh, a lawyer and executive director of the Maine Human Rights Commission, and Mike Levy, a retired lawyer from Winthrop, Maine. Um, Amy and Mike, whoever wants to go first, and, and without focusing on crystal map, what did you learn from your parents when you were young, um, you know, up, let's say, into the teenage years uh, about the Holocaust from parents, from family? Uh, Mike? Steve, when I was a child of that age, um, somehow I was aware of the Holocaust. I'm not really certain where that information came from. Uh, I'm guessing it was from media. And the reason I guess that is because I learned 
virtually nothing from my parents about the Holocaust. Um, my mother and father, I, I remember never having a sit-down conversation or a conversation at any level about it. I remember my parents having reactions to things that were anti-Semitic. I remember my father, if I ever saw him uh, see or hear a piece of information about the Holocaust, uh, seeing him get very distressed, very emotional, and walk away. But that was not a discussion. I, I recall no discussions. Um, and uh, Amy, for, for you. Yeah, uh, I was, I'll follow up. And actually, Steve, you asked us this question before we started, and I really had to stop and think because I had to actively try to think back. And I don't, like Mike, I don't remember ever having a conversation with my parents about the fact that this thing happened and it was to Jewish people like us and when it was and that members of our family probably were impacted. I don't remember talking about that. And yet I always knew, I, I don't remember how I knew if it was from Sunday school or Hebrew school, because I did all those things. I knew that it happened um, and I knew it affected Jewish people, but I don't remember my parents telling me. Um, I do remember being given the, impression that it wasn't something you spoke about. Being Jewish wasn't something you spoke about. The only time I remember talking about it at all was that our tailor, um, who was a Holocaust, um, because he had the numbers on the inside of his wrist and I saw them. And that I remember my mom telling me that that's why we went to him, because we wanted to support him. And But then when I asked her if I could ask him about the, the numbers, she said he probably doesn't want to talk about it. Um, I, I like both of you um, Jewish and had a very similar um, history of talking about uh, in the family. And that history was, it was literally never mentioned. And uh, I, I've, I've thought about why and, um, and I've, I just have this thought that that American Jews learned about the Holocaust at the same time that everybody else did, which was um, uh, in 1945. Um, I mean, there were certainly other people who may have known, um, but and I think it led, very likely led to a, whole, a sense of great guilt that uh, for people who may have had families um, uh, there, that if they had known this had happened, maybe they could have brought somebody over. Uh, maybe they could have uh, tried to um, speak to their Congress. Uh, congressmen and, and women uh, about um, bringing in Jewish refugees. Uh, and I just think that sense of uh, going through the war, which was difficult, but um, not having any idea that six million people like them 
um, like the three of us, uh, were stabbed. There's, there's, there may be other reasons as well, but I'm not sure you want us to, to get into this conversation. So I'll, I'll hold my thoughts. I, I think we will. Maybe if we have time at the end, we'll come back. Okay. Um, so last spring, Amy Brown, WERU's director of news and public affairs, uh, sent me information on a new, uh, a somewhat new book on the Holocaust. Um, she thought this might be important show for change agents. I read the book and I agreed with Amy. On the morning of November 7, 1938, 17-year-old Herschel Grinspan, a Jewish um, student in Paris, went to the German embassy. Uh, he was very upset uh, because Germany had just recently ex uh, expelled every Polish Jew who lived in Germany, no matter how long they had lived there. Uh, and he went into the embassy and shot and killed a diplomat who died that next day. Hitler used this murder as a pretext to attack Jews. Two, two evenings after the shooting in Paris, Nazi paramilitary and Hitler youth destroyed Jewish businesses across Germany and Austria. Kristallnacht, translated into English, means the night of broken glass, which is the title of the book. Hitler and the Nazis falsely spread the word that Kristallnacht was not created by Nazis. Rather, they said it was a spontaneous uprising of ordinary Jewish uh, German citizens. What most of us learned about Kristallnacht uh, was the breaking of windows. This is accurate. But crystal knock was far more than broken glass. And this brings me to the remarkable story of the book, The Night of Broken Glass. Researchers at Harvard University reached out to Jews who had left Germany as well as um, other uh, Eastern uh, European countries uh, to write about what it was like living under Nazi rule. 250 manuscripts were submitted from the USA, from, uh, from Great Britain, from Australia, from Palestine, and other places. The, manu the manuscripts, however, and this was in 1940, so um, very close, you know, under, uh, under two years of 
the beginning of the Holocaust um, was not published. For reasons that are unclear, the manuscripts were lost for about 40 years, where they were found um, accidentally in a file cabinet in um, some storage room at Harvard University. The book that uh, the three of us have have read is almost entirely the descriptions of what happened on Kristallnacht on those uh, two uh, nights and days and also what happened afterwards. Just a warning that these excerpts that we will be reading describe awful violence from Nazis toward Jews. I suggest that young children may not be appropriate to have listened to this. As you will hear shortly, Kristallnacht was much, much more than breaking glass. Historians have known this for a long time, but for most others, this book will open our eyes to a horror that is far worse than breaking glass. Uh, welcoming anybody who has just come on onto the radio. Uh, we are talking about uh, the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht when Nazis destroyed Jewish businesses and homes. And also we will talk about um, anti-Semitism in U.S. schools. Uh, this subject may not be appropriate for young children. Um, so... Mike, could you um, uh, read uh, the first excerpts from the book? Thank you, Steve. I'm going to read uh, parts of the report written by Hugo Moses. Hugo Moses, Manuscript 39. Hugo Moses was born in the Rhineland in 1894. He was employed since 1920 by Oppenheim Bank. He was married, had two children, emigrated to the USA in 1939. On a Monday morning in October 1938, the Gestapo suddenly appeared at the homes of all Jews of Polish ancestry in every city in Germany and told them to vacate their apartments within five hours, taking all their movable goods with them. The unfortunate people packed up the most indispensable of their meager possessions and gathered, weeping and lamenting, at their assembly points. In the city where I was employed, the poor gathered on the busiest square in the middle of the city. 
The children had been taken out of school and picked up by officials. Hungry, frightened, and crying loudly, they ran to their parents. The cordoning officials had great difficulty holding back the excited and, shouted peop and shouting people who had gathered around the square. A few Aryan men and women who had expressed their criticisms too loudly were led away. An Aryan doctor took out of the crowd a Polish woman who was about to give birth and accompanied her to the hospital. Two days later, the child was born. The others were led away to the railroad station and there loaded onto cattle wagons. And we Jewish men used lorries and cars to help them load their few possessions until our hands were bleeding in the freezing air. A girlfriend of my daughter's later wrote to her from camp on the Polish border. Had the train run off the rails and killed us all, we would have been better off. On the evening of 9 November 1938, the S.A. brown shirts and the S.S. black shirts met in bars to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the day of the failed putsch in Munich. Around 11 o'clock in the evening, I came home from a Jewish aid organization meeting, and I can testify that most of the, quote, German people, quote, who had a day later the government said were responsible for what happened that night, lay peacefully in bed that evening. Everywhere lights had been put out. Nothing suggested that in the following hours such terrible events would take place. At 3 a.m. sharp, someone insistently rang at the door to my apartment. I went to the window and saw that the street lights had been turned off. Nonetheless, I could make out the transport vehicle, out of which emerged about 20 uniformed men. I recognized only one of them, a man who served as the leader. The rest came from other localities and cities and were distributed over the district in accordance with marching orders. I called out to my wife, don't be afraid, these are party men, please keep calm. I then went to the door in my pajamas and I opened it. A wave of alcohol hit me, and the mob forced its way into the house. A leader pushed by me and yanked the telephone off the wall. A leader of the SS men, green-faced with drunkenness, cocked his revolver as I watched and then held it to my forehead and slurred, Do you know why we've come here, you swine? I replied, No. And he went on because of the outrageous act committed in Paris, for which you are also to blame. If you even try to move, I'll shoot you like a pig. I kept quiet and stood, my hands behind my back, in the ice-cold draft coming in the open door. An S.A. man, who must have had a little human feeling, whispered to me, keep still, don't move. During all this time and for another 20 minutes, the drunken SS leader fumbled threateningly with his revolver near my forehead. An inadvertent movement on my part, or a clumsy one on his, and my life would have been over. And if I live to be a hundred, I will never forget that brutish face and those dreadful minutes. In the meantime, about ten uniformed men had invaded my house. I heard my wife cry, What do you want with my children? You touch the children over my dead body. I then heard only the crashing of overturned furniture 
the breaking of glass, and the trampling of heavy boots. Weeks later, I was still waking from restless sleep, still, still hearing that crashing, hammering, and striking. We will never forget that night. After about a half an hour, which seemed to me an eternity, the brutish drunks left our apartment shouting and bellowing. The leader blew a whistle, and as his subordinates stumbled past, he fired his revolver close to my head, two shots into the ceiling. I thought my eardrums had burst, but I stood there like a wall. A few hours later, I showed a police officer the two bullet holes. The last SA man who left the building hit me on the head so hard with the walking stick that he had used to destroy my pictures that a fortnight later the swelling was still perceptible. As he went out, he shouted at me, There you are, you Jewish pig. Have fun. The next evening, people were afraid that the same thing might happen again. But on that night, the police continually patrolled the streets, especially in the area where there were Jewish houses. Two hours later, another police officer appeared and told me exactly this. I'm sorry, but I have to arrest you. I said to him, I have never broken the law. Tell me why you are arresting me. The officer, I have been ordered to arrest all Jewish men. Don't make it so hard for me. Just follow me. My wife accompanied me to the police station. Excuse me, turning the page. Three men were put in each individual cell. We could hardly move. Laughing, the prison guard explained to us, we were not expecting such a crowd. Then there was a dark broth, probably supposed to be coffee, a few slices of bread and a little jam, and the cell door closed again. The first night in prison, Suddenly the light went out and we sat there in the dark. We spread our overcoats on the floor and tried to rest. Sleep was impossible. The hard ground prevented my body from relaxing. My head was tired from brooding and thinking and my thoughts were at home with my wife and children and my old mother. My heart was agitated by the events of the last 24 hours. My thoughts constantly turned around the questions. Why are you here? How long will this last? What is going to happen to you? Wednesday, November 16, 1938. Suddenly at 5 in the morning, the light went on and we got up, thinking our watches were running an hour late. Somehow we vaguely felt that this was a special day. At 5.30, the coffee was handed out before the cells were cleaned. At 6, the cell doors on the corridor were open and names were read. The door to our cell remained closed. Nobody was paying any attention to us. At 6.15, all the Jews whose names were read appeared in the dark prison courtyard. Jews in overcoats, without overcoats, in pajamas and slippers. Names were read out by lamplight. Names of friends, acquaintances, people, brothers, fellow believers. Names names. Then, like a thunderbolt, the truth struck us. They were going to the concentration camp, to the hell from which there is no escape. 
There is only work and hunger, disease, and the sadism of the guards. There is only death, death, death. Amy, um, if you want to read your first piece. Yes, <clears throat> yes. Next is Rudolf Bing, manuscript 252A. Born in Nuremberg in 1876, he's a lawyer, married with two daughters. He emigrated to Palestine in 1939 and died there in 1963. We lived on the first floor of a large apartment building that was owned by my family and that had a very large empty courtyard with outbuildings and storehouses. About three o'clock in the morning, my wife and I were woken. We heard a dreadful bellowing by the front door, and in the dark, I saw a great many people standing in front of the building. All the doorbells were being rung, and voices were shouting, open up, open up immediately. I immediately called police headquarters, and after giving my, giving my name, said a mob is trying to break into my building. Are you Aryan? asked a female voice. No, I answered. She hung up without saying anything further. In the meantime, the people in front of the building had broken through the door panels. They had brought the necessary tools, such as axes and the like, with them. They stormed up the stairs to the upper floors. We were alone in the apartment. Because of well-known difficulties that Jews had in finding service, we had long had to manage for ourselves without help. Words cannot express what I owe to the presence of mind and clarity of my beloved wife, who, even though she was suffering, did not lose her head for one moment during these critical minutes. We heard plaintive cries from the stairway. Apparently, a Jewish neighbor, who recognized his voice, was being beaten. We want to avoid falling into their hands at any price. It was my wife who first made this decision. In the past, we had half in jest thought about how we could escape from our apartment in the event that we were in danger of being arrested, and we now acted accordingly. We locked the door to the apartment and then the doors to our bedroom with the adjoining dressing room tied the linen bed sheets together and attached them to the window frame. I expressed my concern as to whether it would hold our weight. We could already hear the door to our apartment being broken down. The window of the dressing room looked out onto a narrow street opposite a hops storehouse. In front of it, opposite the window, was a porch roof that was somewhat lower. This roof was two and a half meters from our window. Making a quick decision, I threw a mattress onto the porch roof and leapt across the street onto it, then threw the mattress to the ground and jumped down. Above me, the people were forcing their way into our apartment. My wife didn't believe that the window frame and bed sheets would hold. Suddenly, she was hanging by her fingertips from the windowsill, and then she let go. Fortunately, she landed in my arms, since I was standing immediately underneath her on the mattress I had thrown down. Naturally, I fell over with my burden, but the mattress cushioned our fall. We were saved. The height from which my wife let herself fall was that of a normal first floor. I estimated it to be about 10 meters. Everything happened in a few seconds. We were, of course, only scantily clothed. Luckily, it was a mild night. While upstairs in our apartment and in all the other Jewish apartments, we could hear the terrible crashing of falling furniture and breaking glass. We ran across the big courtyard in the shadow of the storage sheds. Of a uh, As dawn approached, we knocked on the door of a Christian family who lived in the back building and on whose loyalty we could rely. 
we learned the mob had left our apartments and then we returned to our home. It was an indescribable sight. In the rooms, we literally waded through ruins and shards. The mirrors and all the crockery were shattered. All the cupboards had been overturned and smashed with chair legs and axes. My pictures, including valuable oils of which I was proud, had been slashed. The stuffing from the ripped open upholstered furniture was strewn around the whole apartment. Not a single chair or table was still intact. The radio had obviously been trampled on with boots. Most of the Jewish apartments in the city looked the same, and all the shops had been completely destroyed. Soon, however, we heard much sadder news. The preceding afternoon, my wife had seen three of her girlhood friends at our apartment, where she regularly met them once a month. The husband of one of her friends had been beaten to death that night in front of his wife, and she herself lay in the hospital with severe injuries to her face. The husband of her second friend had been injured in the face and head and remained in critical condition for months. As a consequence, one of his arms was permanently paralyzed, and he suffered from significant speech difficulties. The husband of the third friend had been taken from their apartment and was on his way to the concentration camp in Dachau. If I tried to describe the consequences of that night for my immediate circle of acquaintances, I would have to write a whole book about them. A woman friend of ours lived alone with her three-year-old daughter. The barbarians forced their way even into her daughter's room and smashed her dolls and toys before the weeping child's eyes and with mocking words. And then they told the mother, you can drown your brat in the Jordan. Another lady in our circle of friends was alone in her apartment. After the gang had finished its work there, the leader walked up to her, hit her in the face and said, there you have the revenge for Paris. In the street alone, where my wife's friend's husband was killed, three other men had been beaten to death. Everywhere, we heard of people who had committed suicide in despair. Two widows who chose this way out are known to me by name, and I have already mentioned the suicide of the two privy counselors named Frankenberger. On the same night, more than 300 Jewish men were arrested, and almost as many in Firth. All of those who were under 58 years old were sent to Dachau and the others, including the 78-year-old chairman of the religious community, remained in the Nuremberg Penitentiary for about a week. The fate of those who were sent to Dachau, where they met fellow sufferers from all over southern Germany, was as you would imagine. Large barracks and prisoners' clothing with the Star of David had been prepared for them, a proof that this action had been planned long in advance and would have taken place even without the murder of Herr von Roth. But I want to continue my account of my personal experiences. Since we were unable to stay in our own home, we spent the night following St. Bartholomew's night at the home of my brother-in-law, who lived across the street from Stryker's Palace and whose apartment had been spared in order to preserve appearances in the neighborhood. We wanted to stay there the following night as well. But the next afternoon, a whole contingent of Gestapo agents appeared at the home of my brother-in-law, who had a serious heart problem. They told him that he had to move out of his apartment immediately and for good and leave Nuremberg because no Jews were allowed to be in the neighborhood of Stryker. They stayed in the apartment with a removal van and removers were immediately called in. And within three hours, the apartment was cleaned out under constant supervision and coercion of the Gestapo agents. The removal company took care of my ill brother-in-law, so he was able at least to ride in the remover's own car as far as Erlangen where he spent the night in a hotel before going on to stay in Firth. Only after some weeks 
did he receive permission to return to a different apartment in Nuremberg. Other Jews in the neighborhood suffered a similar fate. My brother-in-law died of a heart attack a few weeks after this turmoil. Thank you. You are listening to Change Agents, and we are discussing today the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht when Nazis destroyed Jewish businesses, homes, and terrorized Jewish families. I, I think I'm going to want to deviate a little bit from our um, uh, what we had decided to do. I, I, I'd like uh, to do both of you on your second um, uh, reading um, focused on what happened uh, in concentration camps. Um, so, uh, Amy, if you can read that, I think that's uh, important, and then we'll move on. Sure. This is about Carl Rosenthal, which is manuscript 235. Uh, he was born in 1885, married two sons. From 1924, he was the rabbi of the Berlin Reform Community. He was arrested on 11 November, released from Sachsenhausen, on 16 December 1938 and died in Oxford in 1952. So, um, he was arrested um, in Alexanderplatz. That's where he was held before being taken to Sachsenhausen. And he said, it was about 1045 when our four police vehicles drove into Sachsenhausen concentration camp. I saw that the camp was surrounded by high walls and barbed wire. A large iron gate opened. The truck turned sharply into the road leading to the gate and suddenly stopped with such a hard jolt that we literally banged into each other. What happened then cannot be told as quickly as it happened. The two policemen leapt out of the truck and we heard a medley of raucous voices shouting, out you Jewish swine, get down out of the truck. Are you not down yet? We hurried to get out of the truck, but as we were Jumping down, the SS men armed with batons and whips attacked us. Amid wild shouts and curses, they beat us mercilessly on the back, on the legs, on the head and face. Two SS men climbed into the truck and kicked the prisoners getting out. You swine still have your hats on your heads, cried an SS man and savagely struck the long since bared heads. I received a terrible kick in the back so that I flew off the truck. My bag, in which I had my few possessions, fell on the ground and broke open. When I bent down and tried to collect the scattered things, I got another kick. Will you get a move on, you old Jewish pig? At the same time, he hit me with his riding whip. At this moment, one of my unfortunate fellow sufferers was thrown off the truck by such a terrible blow that he remained lying on the ground with large gaping wounds on his head and forehead. Blood was streaming over his face and overcoat. Get going, you damn Jews, the SS men were shouting. The SS men drove us along with blows from their batons and whips and repeated kicks. An old man near me began to groan. My heart, I can't go on. He stumbled and fell and remained lying on the ground. I tried to help him up, but the SS men had already come over and started beating him, shouting, get going, you stinking old Jew. I myself soon started to feel heart pains because I had had angina a few years earlier. 
Despite my troubles, I had to continue running along in the ranks of my fellows. Finally, the pursuit must have lasted 30 minutes. I collided with the man in front of me. The column had stopped and we stood still. Out of breath, gasping, coughing, trembling, hearts pounding, hundreds of hounded men stood there. The big searchlights had lit the area from all sides. Sometimes their light swept over low barracks. Sometimes it showed a tower from which other searchlights shone down. Cautiously, I looked around at my comrades. Most of them had disheveled clothing, clothing as a result of the frenzied housing, hounding the SS men's blows and stumbling and falling. An SS man holding a riding whip walked slowly past us. After four or five steps, he stopped, peered at one of us, and shouted, Why are you looking at me so stupidly, you dirty old Jew? And he struck the man in the face three times with his riding whip. Next, he stopped in front of another prisoner and began to hit him on the nose with his fist. What's your name? So-and-so. Your profession, lawyer. What, a lawyer? You're a damned nasty crook. And he gave him an especially hard punch in the nose. One of the older prisoners who had to supervise us had to bring along a sign that was attached to a stake. An SS man ordered each one of us to hold up the sign for a while and then hand it off to the next. On the sign was painted in large letters, we are responsible for the murder of Herr von Roth. The man quietly slipped up to one of us who was just about to hold up the sign and gave him such a dreadful blow that blood flowed out of his mouth. Why he hit him, I do not know. After a time, a second sign was brought. It read, we are the destroyers of German culture. It also had to be held by each man in our column and handed on. About 50 yards away, I heard an SS man raging and shouting, and he ordered all of us to say together, we are responsible for the murder of Herr von Roth. And we didn't say it loud enough for him, so we had to shout it over and over for a quarter of an hour. This went on with other sentences. SS men went up and down the rows, why didn't you join in, you damn Jew, and punching people in the face? We had to keep alternating. We are responsible for the murder of Herr von Roth. We are the destroyers of German culture. Meanwhile, the SS men were continuing their senseless and arbitrary beatings. The fear of these repeated abuses wore us down. We had not yet come to terms with our dreadful and unexpected situation. Here, I must say something about the cunning, the insidiousness with which not only the physical abuse, but also just as much the moral and mental abuse of the prisoners was conceived. We were all already in a state of high mental agitation as a result of our arrest and transfer to the concentration camp. Then came the inhumanely savage abuse on our arrival at the camp. After several hours, more than one of us had already broken down. Now completely exhausted, we were made to stand in front of this threatening wall and the electrified barbed fence in order to show us that escape from the camp was impossible. And skulls that we had before our eyes for hours portended the horrible fate that awaited anyone who, despite everything, attempted in desperation to escape. A few meters away, a man fainted, and his comrades put a package under his head. An SS man standing nearby came over and pushed the fallen man with his foot and said, what's up with him? When we tried to make the unfortunate man stand up, we found that he was dead. It doesn't matter, the SS man said. Far too few of you croak anyway. Two of us had to drag the dead man away to the medical barracks. I thought that they would probably order us to go into the barracks. We had been on our feet since 6 o'clock the previous evening for over 12 mm -hmm. hours straight. How good it would have been to rest. Then not far away I heard an SS man shout, Hold your snout up, you old Jewish piece of shit. That was his morning greeting to us. 
He stopped in front of the man in front of me, who was, I later learned, 63 years old. What is your name, the SS man said, using the familiar du form in German, a very impolite way of addressing an adult. Glucksmann, which means lucky man. Your profession? Former mayor. Where were you mayor? The man said, his town. The SS man, with a triumphant grin on his face, said, ah, now I've got you. You once threw me out when I was in your office. Just wait, we're going to play a little trick on you. Thank you. 30 to 40,000 Jewish men in Germany were put in the concentration camps, including Dachau, Buchenwald, and Sachsenhaus. The number of Jews killed during the 9th and 10th of November and the weeks after are thought to be 400. The number of Jews who committed suicide is not clear. Most of the men in concentration camps were released by the end of December. The fortunate ones were able to leave Germany for the USA, Palestine, Great Britain, Australia, and elsewhere. In the weeks after Kristallnacht, the German government enacted new laws and edicts against Jews. Jews were prohibited to go to school. These are children. Jews were prohibited to practice their professions. Jews were prohibited from driving cars. Jews had limited access to transportation. Aryans, meaning pure Germans, were allowed to take ownership of Jewish homes, businesses, and families for very small amounts of money. So Amy and, and Mike, um, how, how have these readings that you've, um, you've just read and the ones that you may have other ones read, um, how, has, how has that affected your view of Kristallnacht? Um, Amy? I have, thanks for asking that. Um, before reading this, I, my understanding of Kristallnacht was that it was shopkeepers, uh, that it was shops, and the glass was broken, and that was pretty much it. And it was a property crime uh, intended to intimidate. <clears throat> and I did not know that uh, that it was an opportunity, first of all, that I totally believe that it was um, spontaneous. I did not know that it was premeditated. And I did not know that people were taken away and sent to concentration camps um, and that it was intended as an opportunity to force people to leave the country, choose to leave. I, I did not know any of those things. My reactions fairly semi similar to Amy's. Um, I did not realize the the significance of this event as really the first significant event of moving Jewish people from their homes into concentration camps. Um, uh, it's clear to me that the term Kristallnacht is a euphemism, uh, a way of minimizing 
what actually happened that night. Uh, um, breaking glass in storefronts uh, is small in comparison to what really happened. Um, I was also totally struck by the incredible nature of these documents. I mean, these are contemporaneously written eyewitness accounts. Uh, 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 I also think the way this book was organized did a spectacular job of tracing the authenticity of these documents. Uh, it is hard for any historian of any credible nature to do anything except accept these things as legitimate eyewitness accounts. Um, uh, so back to your question, Steve. <laughs> Sorry for meandering a minute, but um, uh, the uh, the significance of Crystal Nacht was that uh, this was a well-planned event. Uh, it was part of the long-going goal of exterminating the Jews, and this was the, the, the significance of that night was that that this had happened. And that it was the beginning of the uh, of the Holocaust. Um, thank you both. I don't think I have um, anything to add. Uh, um, and as I I think said at the uh, beginning, um, historians would say, "Well, we knew this," um, and I think they were right. But for most of the rest of us, um, uh, uh, we thought it was breaking glass. Uh, uh, I think the time has come to um, change the title of what happened. Uh, it was Hitler who um, decided to call this the night of broken glass. And so when uh, it got into U.S. papers and U.K. papers, um, that's what it was. It was, it was still significant, but um, it's time that we come up with a, a more accurate name for what, what happened. We are now going to move on to a different topic. Uh, I've been, uh, and before that, just to let people know who come in, we are uh, talk, have talked about Crystal Lock, and now we'll be talking about um, uh, anti-Semitic uh, comments and jokes in uh, in schools in Maine and across across the country. Uh, what we will be reading, uh, examples of some of these comments uh, are disturbing and uh, may not be suitable for young children. So what I'd, I'd like to do is um, to have um, uh, Mike, you start to, to read uh, the comments, and we'll just go through um, the first three. 
I'm reading comments and jokes about Jews uh, that apparently were told by students in New England. I've heard someone say, how many Jews can you fit into a car? Two in the front seat, three in the back seat, and six million in the ashtray. There is a Jewish student that gets made fun of by others using Holocaust jokes as, too bad you weren't around during the Holocaust because you don't belong here. What is the difference between a Jew and a pizza? The pizza doesn't scream when you put it in the oven. And lastly, you should have been killed. Amy? Yeah. Boys in my class know I am Jewish and gave me pennies one day. They continue to assume that I must be rich because I'm Jewish. This bothers me because I'm not rich or close to being so. Jews are cheap and do not share their money. Students draw swastikas in school. Some students make the Nazi salute. The Holocaust didn't happen. I'm devastated that Hitler was shot. Hitler was great. It's shower time. I hate stupid Jews. Why weren't they all killed? What is the difference between a Jew and a Boy Scout? The Boy Scout comes back from camp. He should have been with his ancestors in the chamber. Jews have curly hair and are dishonest. What are your favorite holidays? The Holocaust. The next readings that we will do are um, going to be focused on the impact on Jews. Um, I've been interviewing Jewish students as well as non-Jewish students about anti-Semitism in schools for quite a number of years. Uh, and Mike, can you start with the first one? Last year, on a bus ride, a kid started making anti-Semitic jokes at me. He said, go back to your concentration camp and burn in your oven like your ancestors. I felt scared, very sad, and it scared me the whole ride. The anti-Semitism that I had faced only makes me a stronger Jew and a stronger person. It does bother me, but no one can say anything that will insult what I believe in or make me question my identity. It definitely doesn't feel good. I'm not easily bothered by things, but sometimes it feels like I am being put down want to just yell and tell everyone we are human, but it also makes me understand that because we are a minority, it makes us special. Who cares of what others say? Honestly, forget the haters. We can get through this as one. Hearing derogatory things about Jews gives me a feeling of emptiness and loneliness. People who say these things are people who don't know any better. They don't know what they are saying, 
or are stupid enough to mean what they're saying. I try to stay away from these types of people. I think that subconsciously I have become less sure of my religion. This is literally because of the repetition of anti-religious stereotypes and jokes. The impact of this has been that Jewish students no longer take stands toward anti-Semitic jokes, slurs, or actions against Jews, either within or outside the school. The actions of others have become so prevalent that we treat them as, quote, no big deal, or we tolerate them often. These actions don't cause people to turn their head anymore. It's become a small deal, quote, in the eyes of many. I'm interested in uh, what your reactions were. Is this uh, a surprise to you? Is it not? Uh, and either way, how how does it um, react? And um, we're, we're coming toward the end, so I, uh, Mike, if you could start in a relatively short response. A lot of it made... Uh struck home with me as I think about my childhood and remembering uh, things that were said or looks that were given to me as a kid. Um, The one that uh, was interesting to me here was the student who said, um, sort of like she fought back or he fought back, stood up, wasn't ashamed. Um, That's a pretty brave reaction. when particularly if you're in a minority and you are bullied and you're treated this way, um, I think I think it takes the strongest of person to stand up to that. Most uh, most of these reactions felt more similar to the reactions that I had when I was a child. Um, my, yeah, my reaction is based on what I've observed and heard from my children, <clears throat> who have had all of these very similar comments and experiences to these um, and continue to now. Um, And uh, sometimes they do stand up to them um, and sometimes they don't. But I think the idea spoken at the end, I see that this has become a small deal, not a big deal is, is very much that's their experience that it is commonplace. um, And people barely bother to comment on it anymore. Never mind oppose it. Thank you for both what you what you said. If I worry a lot about this language, if anti-Jewish bias increases in the future, will these students, the, the non-Jewish students, who either hear or say these comments, but who know very little about Judaism other than these stereotypes and jokes, they heard in high school. And what will they do as adults uh, if anti-Semitism begins to increase? Will their unconscious mind bring forth the degrading stereotypes and jokes and cause them to say, well, not a big deal? I worry that it could at some point become a big deal. Our students, we need to reduce the use of these ugly and hurtful words. What can we do to reduce the use of anti-Semitism in schools? Our students need 
uh, workshops that will help them understand the danger from the hating bias. Uh, our students need to practice skills for speaking up against racism, against uh, bias toward women and girls, toward Muslim, toward uh, LGBT students, uh, toward immigrants, and bias toward Jews. I've seen the courage of students who speak up, and I've seen the degrading words and jokes decrease significantly. Thank you, Amy and Mike, for your readings and your thoughts and comments. And uh, if each of you could just um, have anything that you would like to say, like 45 seconds apiece, for uh, to bring this to, to close, if if you if you want. Mike, I'm still thinking. You go ahead. Uh, um, uh, preparing to be on this event with you, Amy and Steve. Uh, was was a thoughtful process for me. Uh, it caused me to think about things that I've been trained not to think about. It caused me to have to listen to these stories. Uh, it's interesting having listened to them today as I read them and as Amy read them uh, that um, uh, they had a lot of impact and uh, uh, Therefore, I think it's important that these stories have a role to play. Um, I think, uh, and without attempting to minimize uh, anti-Semitism, because it really hits very close to home, but there are other people in other minority groups who also have their stories to tell. And within, within those communities, it hits very hard and is very close to home for them as well, so we have we have work to do, and I'm uh, I'm hopeful that we will do the right thing. Thank you, Amy. Um, it felt like it could be me. Felt like it could be my kids, and that's always surprising every time I read them. But it reminds me, just like Mike, even though I'd rather not think about them, I have to in order to make sure Jews have a saying never again. But it happens again everywhere around the world and in this country. And so it's our job to keep talking about the Holocaust, even though people are always criticizing Jews for, oh, why are you still talking about the Holocaust? And I guess that's why, to make sure it doesn't happen again, because it could. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, you have been listening to Change Agents on WERU at 89.9 on the FM dial. I am Steve Wessler, your host for Change Agents. Uh, we discussed an important book about Crystal Knock. We also discussed anti-Jewish stereotypes and degrading jokes about the Holocaust occurring in schools. You can listen to Change Agents on the first Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. and online at 89.9 FM. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Mike. Look forward to meeting you in person, Amy. Me too. You're listening to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org.
Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. No country has the right to dictate borders, to bully smaller countries, to 